it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. All right, do not turn that motherfucking clock on. You've tuned to the One Sensational Shot Network. Welcome to the Evening Glass. I'm Fletcher Walton and this issue sees me joined once again by comedian Aidan McCaffrey for a long old meandering chinwag. You may have caught part of it last month when Aidan gave us his as yet still accurate projections on box office behemoth Avengers Endgame. Here, we turn focus, eventually, to a couple of our favourite blockbuster helmers, James Cameron and Christopher Nolan. I say eventually because the two of us witter away about all sorts for the opening quarter hour, so if you're desperate to skip the starter, jump forward to the 15 minute mark. You know, it's not to say that cultural appropriation can't be crass. You know, I'm never gonna, yeah. I'm never going to dye my hair blonde and have dreads, for example, because <laughs> I think I would look shit, and I don't think it's a particularly great look. But if the my view is, if the price for all rock and roll is, if that's the price, I'll take it. Oh, just before we came to it, <laughs> if surfer dudes are the price of bad culture, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, no, I will take some cultural appropriation. Yeah, um, this is a wider conversation, which because we haven't prepped for. Also, we're in agreement. We, we're yeah, totally in yeah, agreement, we so are, maybe we should just move true. on from it. Let's move on from this. <laughs> we'll well, look, we do need to dedicate another time, a full 60 minutes, to <laughs> these themes in current cinema, because I, it's not my intention for us to be provocative, but I do want to be thoughtful on the subject. Yeah. I'm going to refill my drink, and then we'll get to talking about... Well, I want to talk about Cameron, Cameron Nolan, Christopher Nolan, what they're up to next. I'm not yet relieved about the box office figures, though. And that's oh. not out of pessimism... I'm just still nervous. I thought, I thought, I was on the way here thinking, having crunched these numbers this morning, like, I'm going to put Fletch in a great mood, and you're not. That, that's too close for you, isn't it? I think this is more like, uh, you need only a draw on the last day of the season, and the op- and the other team need to win 5-0, when you think, it, it's, it, we will I probably actually, my, get a draw. But... I, my main, I, my, my concern is, what if, what if it gets to, say I'm wrong, but not by much, let's say it gets to 2.7. Yeah. What if Disney then goes, we want the crown? Let's, yeah. give it, let's give it another push. That's, yeah, that's my concern as well. Because In fact, if they re-release it, yeah. I mean, yeah, if they arguably if they re-release it, it could, it could overtake it. Well, who, and also, who and also if, if, if who, who owns Avatar? Fox. 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 It's going to be Fox. Which right? is Disney. Ah. So can James so Cameron, then, can he pull his weight and say, I want mine re-released, come on. Cameron shouldn't do that because he'd lose. <laughs> no one wants to be watching yeah, Avatar. He, he might only need Avatar's another... Got, Avatar 2 has an uphill struggle. For Avatar, if that were re-released, he'd only need another 150 mil to stay 50 to 100 mil ahead. Well, actually, no, but maybe they will be releasing because the fact is they're releasing Avatar 2 in, I think, 2021 or 22. Yeah. And by that point, it's been 13 years since the first film. Disney might legitimately just go, we need to re-release this to remind people what it was. Yeah. So actually, maybe, maybe it'll be like how... I think the biggest selling album in America, it was always a dance between Thriller and The Eagles' Greatest Hits. And they literally yeah. just would take out each other. They would just take over each other every few months, every few years. Yeah. Maybe that's what we're going ahead to with like Endgame and... Uh... Do you suppose that Thriller will have continued success in the next 10 years? Well, okay, so my view on this is... Oh, no, yeah, actually, I was being glib, but go ahead. Because I would actually, I'd, I'd want to know no, your, your genuine response. So, a massive Michael Jackson fan. I abs- Who are you? Absolutely love it. I was obsessed Prince. with his... No, mate, mate Prince is... <laughs> I prefer Prince, but the fact is you can like both. 
Michael Jackson, love Michael Jackson. I can moonwalk and do all his dance moves because I practiced them when I was a teenager. I was a cool guy. So it's heartbreaking. Now. I, and I have, and I usually do separate the man and the art. Yeah. I don't have a problem listening to Morrissey, old Morrissey records. I don't have a problem watching Chinatown. I don't have a problem watching mm. Woody Allen films. I'm not forgiving their crimes or or, la- or whatever or their alleged crimes. Yeah, it's just who I am. Honestly, I can watch this stuff and I can separate them. When you watch that documentary, it's too it's too grim. But I've sort of come up with this sort of 1985 dividing line with Jackson, in which, like, it right. seems like he started do- thinking he could get away with all this stuff, you know, after Thriller, when he became sort of untouchable as this global megastar. Yeah. And all the crimes you know about seem to happen 87 onwards. So I've, and I'm not saying that my, this might make me a bad person. I genuinely right. think I can listen to Thriller and everything before and be okay. It makes you pedo adjacent, but I don't think it makes you a bad person. Because I was thinking about this, I was thinking. I'm not an enabler. I'm just in terms of cancel culture, which I'm opposed to. The impulse is to dismiss everything Polanski's ever done. With Michael Jackson, because of the crime in question, the alleged crime in question, uh, like what about the ship with the Jackson Five when he was nine? Yeah, no, exactly. Just throw that shit away. No, exactly. So yeah, I... and it is interesting because part of the reason I can listen to Smith's records, even though Morrissey has now become this racist fool, is that I genuinely don't think of him as being the same man back then. I mean, he's not. Like, mm. You're not. You're not the same person you were five years ago. None of us are. We mm. all chat, and I and I know that some people might view that as like a, a get-out clause that I've invented for myself. But it's just genuinely just the way I think. Like, and, uh, and you know, the saddest thing for me with Morrissey is that he's got the same. When Michael Caine made that picture, Harry Brown, the question that was put to him was, "How has London changed?" Um, this is a film about vigilanteism in in the in the East End, uh, and Michael Caine, a bloke who hasn't lived any kind of real life in London since maybe the early seventies. Yeah, he's been in Hollywood forever and ever. He espoused his opinions, um, and they're f- they're ignorant. I don't mean they're racist, but they're fairly ignorant because what the fuck does he know? He's been away a long time, and he's the sort of bloke that might go back to where he actually lived when he was a young man and just get becoming an actor. Might go back there once a year, and if you then skip a year or two, you realise, shit, where's everything gone? I mean, it's the same for me. I lived in Ashford in Surrey for six years. If I'd left after five years and then gone back four years later, I would have seen literally nine shops derelict that had been there when I was there. That would be shocking too. I understand the ignorance of older entertainers because they leave a place and maybe they expect it to stay the same. But with Morrissey... I don't know why he consistently puts himself in harm's way. He he simply doesn't need to do that unless it is his conviction. Unless racism is his conviction. Well, the weird thing about Morrissey, I think, is that I th- in a way, we maybe we shouldn't be too surprised because there's a thread of him being obsessed with Englishness. Yeah. And so and so he has expressed you know abhorrent views before. Like you know, he's always he's, he's always loved the craze. You know this. Yeah, he's fucking yeah. obsessed with the craze as being this great thing that, and he's like he views them as like the same way he views Silla Black. Like it's just this glamorous part of sixties culture. Yeah, that we've Stubbs, and yeah, it's Barbara it's, Windsor. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like what is wrong with him? He's literally glamorizing gangsters and murderers well, here. And I and I think like that weird attachment to a certain brand of Englishness is is both feeds into that, and yet yet also into what has developed into this Islamophobia. I'd like to bring some level of insight to that, and I think it's that the the gay culture that Morrissey interacts with is a gay culture that prioritises those depictions of masculinity, boxing clubs, low-level gangsters, shifty characters, um, 
the uh, what's it called the homosocial so all men together doing manly things and one of the craze was undoubtedly gay and Morrissey speaks to that constantly and it's one of the things that made I, this is what I think it is I think when he was in the Smiths he talked more about I don't want to sound uninformed but he spoke more about the gay experience of the 50s and 60s um, where everything was a taboo and we're talking about Polari, forbidden love, longing subtle gestures, knowing winks. And that was what it was like to be gay in the, in the post-war era when it was still illegal. And I think increasingly, as you say, in this um, wrapped up in his belief in Britishness and whatever that could mean, he has become obsessed, preoccupied rather, with a more overtly tough masculine version of the gay experience. As I say, around boxing clubs. Uh, how, did you, how did that tie into the... Islamophobia there. I think it's what you said, which is um, a fondness for a bygone era when things were simpler. Maybe he, there's, there can be happiness in simplicity and uh, a monoculture is easier to understand, easier to participate in and control. Yeah. Usually that's attacked in terms of oh, everybody wants things to be white again. But I, I, I think if we went to another... <laughs> If we took it to another nation, well, we will. Yeah, look, we all glamorise the past. Like, yeah. I, I often, sometimes, I sometimes think, God, the nineties. Why can't it be like the nineties again? Well, yeah, if you... because because we, we it was like an economically prosperous time. Russia was like in the descendant. Do, do you know what I mean? Globally, things were quite peaceful. I know there was there were a lot of pockets. Yeah, look, and I have talked about it. I, and but I, always... I have to remind myself, it's not good for everyone. Gay people couldn't get married. Do you know what I mean? Well, the one I always bring up is that while we were enjoying, while we were enjoying Britpop. There was a fucking genocide in mainland Europe. Exactly. Which were, and we were talking about U2 earlier. And, um, yeah, it was in the, the Zuropa tour that uh, they, uh, the U2 tour had video links to Sarajevo. Yeah. It was a very courageous, it possibly might, misplaced, might have been but courageous pop, concept. It might have been the Pop Mart tour. I totally get why people think of the past and go, God, wasn't it just a there's bit gonna, simpler back There's going to be 15, 60-year-old communists, or r- rather people of our parents' age and slightly younger living in ex-communist countries, who will say, it was simpler in the olden days, we had three choices, and one of them was far too expensive, and that that was just how it was. Mate, I've seen, I have seen with my own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Stalin's grave in right. Russia. It's behind uh, the mausoleum that lends it. You're going to say McDonald's. <laughs> no, go on. It is very close to McDonald's. <laughs> um, I went there on, by chance, I was there on Lenin's birthday. And when we went round to the back and saw all the graves of all the old leaders and the cosmonauts and all those people and Stalin's at the end, yeah. and there was, his, his, his grave was drenched in red roses and flowers. Yeah. Because all the old communists still think he's great. They're still going, and you know, I mean, that's partly brainwashing, but it's partly what you say, like, things were simpler back then, you know what I mean? This was 2003 that I was there, so, you know, you're only just coming off that sort of, Yeltsin period, which is quite unpleasant, and you're kind of going yeah. into Putinism and the sort of idea of Russia as like a strong national force again. Um, oh yeah, it was under Yeltsin that everything was sold off to the likes of Abramovich, yes. the oligarchs. Yeah, I. All of this needs to be understood. The, the thing that's lacking today and last year and the year before and the next five years is empathy. Understanding one's opponent doesn't mean that you agree with them, but. Empathy is required in understanding them and getting a sense of perspective on a matter. And when Morrissey says the shit that he does, and increasingly it's bollocks. It is bollocks. Yes. It's not like Bengalian platforms 25 years ago. He's misguided. Watch out for the... That's the power. That's the power source, Aiden. Don't turn off the computer. <laughs> um, 
he's misguided, he's wrong about stuff, uh, but the context needs to be understood that... So, Aaron, are you saying we shouldn't be dismissive of Morrissey? Are you saying we should be sympathetic even though he's wrong? Empathetic. Empathetic. We should, we sh- I think it... Well, people can do as they please, but uh, it's more difficult and more nourishing to see what he's saying, better understand it, and yeah, at the end of it, you'll say, oh, it's still a load of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about celebrities that we don't know. I guess you could put it more into an interpersonal perspective, because how we treat each other is the most important thing. Yeah. And I disagree with family members, but sometimes you've just got to put the politics aside and be like, mum, let's not talk about you, Cap, anymore, because I will fucking explode. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, talk about how you just had your kitchen done. And, and whether, <laughs> whether it's Britain's exit from the European Union or whether it's the election of Donald Trump, Right, so Democrats against Republicans and over here, Labour against Conservative. We will have to convince some people that don't agree with us to agree with us. I'm afraid that too many people are not interested in that. And the, this, the, the, the burgeoning cancel culture is not helpful. We, we must proselytise. We must convince others of the argument because we need the middle ground. We, we simply require some of those to get an electoral victory on the things that matter. Brexit might be a, a, a different argument there, but it is simply no good knowing only people that agree with you and agreeing amongst yourselves. I'm enlightened. Gosh, you're enlightened. We're both so enlightened. And let's completely reject anybody else's deplorable, which is partly what happened in the US election. Now, you there will be racists that you never get, but they're not the middle ground. We're talking about a sliver of the electorate, 8%, 12%. That's vital. That's what swings it every time in this country, usually in America, usually and in other nations as well. The only thing, the thing that does, what we need to be primed for, we're really going off on one now, but what we really need (laughs) to be primed for is the seesaw of history. So in America, they had eight years of Obama, and it's only because they had eight years, two terms of that black president, that the response was Trump. So Obama inspired Trump for a number of reasons. Two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, and so now the response to Trump should be booting him out of office after a single term and getting probably uh, a middle ground Democrat in as progressives and liberals we need to be primed for that rather than making the same insular arguments we talk about this at work you know, i mean i think not like, the, we talk about this in the workplace but not at work endless purity tests within the labor party where's that getting us nowhere <laughs> I mean, we're not in government i mean yeah i suppose a corbynista argument might be god we got so close last time next time's a pushover They'll, they might be right I personally am not convinced. And you saw what's happening in the local elections where, yeah, the Tories will roundly trounce. But Labour should have been making hay. A Tory government that loses over a 1,000 council seats and Labour yeah. loses 80. No. Like, you're the opposition. You should be making hay with this absolute clusterfuck catastrophe yeah. of a government. And you're not. So, you know, it just comes down to hearts and minds. Corbyn is not winning the hearts and minds of the British public. Now, maybe the problems run much, much, run much deeper... Maybe it's that, like, you know, you know, in, in the land of Brexit, you know, Labour can't be as full-throatedly remain as, as, it, as it wants to be. Yeah. Whatever. But the fact is, under this leadership, it's not, we're going way off. We should go make a drink and then... then... Yeah, I'm going to leave you to freestyle. Or do you... Come, you can no, come with me. We'll keep it running. Back in five, folks.
It's a really nice flat, but it's quite weirdly shaped. Is that a fucking come on? Yeah. <laughs> right, so should we actually talk about Nolan and Cameron? Yeah, let's get... So what you you, you pitched the idea of talking about them. Why did you want to make that comparison? Is it just because you want to shit on Nolan for a bit? <laughs> or is it because... No, no, hold on. Um, <laughs> you brought it to... Like, I remember this. You brought it to me. You, um, oh, it was me, wasn't it? Yeah, you summoned me to the kitchen. <laughs> I forgot about this. And thought that I was pro-Cameron I thought and I nolan I thought I'd try and needle... Fletch. Yeah, you were baiting me, weren't you? I, was trying, I thought I'd bait him by going up to him and saying, Nolan, and I, and I prefaced it by saying, this is genuinely what I think. Close that door. So, Shut that door. This is Go genuinely ahead. what I think, that Nolan is a better director than James Cameron. And I thought you'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah, hit the roof. But you're actually quite reasoned about it. You were like... Yeah, I, 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 you saw me thinking. I, I did, I yeah. I bowed my head pensively. You thought about it. Yeah, and began calculations in my mind. Um... And I think my initial reaction was probably, but Cameron is a better writer yeah. and a better all-round filmmaker. And Cameron's films... End of episode. Uh, We're yeah. done. <laughs> yeah. We are done. 40 minutes about Morrissey. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Cameron makes better films. His films are more engaging. They resonate more. I think their dialogue is much better than that in Nolan Pictures. However, one of the great facets of Nolan is I think he's a master technician that's an obvious thing to say but I think it is true but I don't think he's yet made a film as good as T2 or Aliens other than I think The Prestige is a masterpiece the, the dialogue thing's quite interesting because I actually main stink coming into this was that like Cameron writes poor dialogue but actually now when I think about it I think you might be right I think he does write better dialogue I, and it's not that he's like you know yes Avatar it's all exposition. It's pretty. Let's bad. discount that because yeah, let's discount neither that. of us have seen it to any real yeah, properly exactly. uh, studied extent, anyway. And you know, but actually, I think Cameron does write me- memorable dialogue. Yeah. And I think Cameron. I think the reason Nolan's a better general writer is, it's just he's got a very. It's very good on structure. He's very good on plot. He comes up with original concepts. It's all quite smart. And um, but it's sort of maybe the dialogue is sort of quite mechanical in a way. Like actually, yeah. it's serving all those things I just mentioned, rather than, you know. You don't, yeah, I kind of know where I'm going with this. I don't think he writes characters that pop off the screen in quite a fun way. And I no, think, then. yeah, correct. And yeah. I think that's because, yeah, he's actually quite, he's got quite a serious approach to the way he writes. Whereas Cameron, there is a sense of fun. And yeah, sometimes it's silly and jockish, all that stuff in, all that. He's very into his like jockish military uh, banter, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That whole opening sequence too. of Aliens. Uh, it's, it's memorable. We, all, we always yeah. quote those lines from Aliens. Like, have you ever been mistaken for a man, Vesquez? No. Have you? Yeah. You know, it's silly, but it's fun. And you know, maybe that sort of reaches a sort of nadir in Avatar with the whole, like, you know, look at what we got here, meals on wheels. And it's <laughs> like, I think you need to stop doing this, Cameron. It's not as fresh as it he, was in 86. It, it's... We've got to presume he's just out of practice. The bloke is rusty. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for keeping your creative uh, wheels oiled. You know what I mean? You know, these things are muscles. If you don't work out for 10 years, the first workout is going to be tough. And I think this is probably where, for me, Nolan does have the edge and why Nolan has the edge over a lot of people who who are doing similar things to him is that he's always working. I mean, the fact that he only released... uh, Dunkirk's 20... Is it 2017 or 2018? I think it's 2018. Is it? Oh, God, I can't remember. Same year as The Big Sick, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Recent. <laughs> yeah, but, but actually, but actually, you just look back to... He does The Dark Knight, this massive film. No, but actually, no. Let's go back even further. 
He does Batman Begins in 20, 2005. It's a big blockbuster. The next year he releases The Prestige, and then two years later he releases this epic film, The Dark Knight. Yeah. And then two years later, he must always just be thinking. He must basically be in a constant process of either writing, producing, or directing, or editing. And yeah, then he's back yeah. into the next one. And, you know, when they announced the new Nolan film, they only announced it like two months ago that he was doing a new one. It's being released next year. Mm. It's called Tenet, and it's going to be released next summer. Like, it's all is happening. You know, the, we, the wheels are constantly moving. And I think that benefits him because he's kind of, so far, always been on the top of his game. Whereas Cameron takes, what, 12 years off of the Titanic and the script isn't yeah. great. And it's not that he's not passionate about it. It's not that he's not bringing his A-game as a director, but it's just like, oh, if you, I just feel like if, you, if you're doing more stuff, maybe it would be less special when a Cameron film comes out. But I do think they'd probably be better because you, 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 your wheel will be oiled. I think at this point it's inaccurate to say James Cameron is a director of films and even a filmmaker. Two films in 20 years and a couple of documentaries, and that's not to diminish the documentaries, but two films in 20 years is like Terence Malick. And Malick is another filmmaker who reached his zenith with The Tree of Life. It's the most concentrated expression of Malick's themes, interests and filmmaking. I suppose it's probably his best film. Uh, I don't know, the first... It's a toss-up. The first three and The Tree of Life are possibly the best. I think that The Tree of Life... I think that The Thin Red Line is a greater achievement because it's more challenging to depict the spectacle of World War II in such an elegaic form. To show everything a regular war film does, but to mix it with the Malikian interests. And the spectacle is still as absorbing as anything in Safe and Private Ryan. To an extent, I prefer the battle the battle sequences in the Thin Red Line, I think. But I'm getting off my point. My point is that Malik came back and I haven't seen growth and progression as a filmmaker. It's Thin Red Line, right? I yeah. keep meaning wanting to see a Thin Blue Line. Not Thin Blue Line, <laughs> not Rowan Atkinson, yeah. no. The, uh, <laughs> there's a poetry to it, like, you know, there's, there's a nice visual idea running through that film of, like, war, the biggest crime of war is that it's a war in nature. Yeah. Lots of shots of lush green fields just, like, erupting into kind of, like oily, you know, flames and expl- uh, yeah. and smoke, do you know what I mean? And I think that's that's what I really liked about that film. Malik has subsequently done the same thing again and again and yeah. again. And The Tree of Life is the best expression of what he what he wants to say. I think the purest expression, fantastic film. I haven't yet seen the alternate cut that's on the Criterion. Um but anyway, so going back to Cameron. But go, yeah, going going. So we're ba- talking about like going back uh, to Cameron. I, I want to think about his dialogue because it's because I'm trying to think of a fun, a good line from one of his films now. <laughs> I, know, I don't think I can from a Cameron film. Uh, no, from a Nolan film. Actually, I suppose The Dark Knight. Did maybe because you you do get that sense of fun uh, with the Joker, I suppose. Well, so here's here's the problem that I have with. Right, James Cameron injects levity into every one of his projects. It helps to have Bill Paxton around. Yeah. God rest his soul. Nolan, honestly, the first time one of his films felt human to me, made me laugh, was perversely the robots in Interstellar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're a really good addition. If he wrote more like that more often, I would feel the same kinship with his work that I do with Cameron's. Films require that level of humanity. So, um, I think the thing is, he doesn't. He's not actually amazing at humor. Like, if you you watch Inception, like there is like a sort of funny. Well, it's not funny is the wrong word. (laughs) There is a supposed to be humorous thread running through with the relationship between Eames and uh, I've forgotten Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character name. 
Well, basically, Gordon Levitt yeah. and uh, Hardy. Yeah. But it's slightly lame humour. It's like... Arthur? Arthur, yeah. Sorry. There's a bit yeah. when I think Levitt's leaning back on his chair and Hardy, like, kicks it to sort of make him fall back. And then yeah, he sort of... Yeah. And, like, that's kind of the level of humour that he's working. It's not It's not particularly cl- good or smart. It gets away with it because, actually, it's such a serious po-faced film. Mm. Like, just any little moment of that, you kind of emotionally grab onto but again, it's not funny like you know, okay, Cameron's yeah. dialogue. I found that charming. Um, did you see Ex Machina? No, still not. A really, really great film. And there's a great moment halfway through. And again, that's quite a serious film. There's a great moment halfway through where Oscar Isaac disco dances to something. I can't remember what it was, but it's like a full-on fun disco song. Hmm. Disco dances with this sort of sexy robot he's created. And it's, it's sort of a bit apropos of nothing, but yeah. it adds this extra dimension to the film. That's in there because... Um, what was the name of that film Alex Garland made before? And it was like a sort of film about clones with uh, with uh, Andrew Garfield and people. And uh, what's her face off The Great Gatsby? Watch that film. It is good, but there is not a laugh in sight. There's not even yeah. someone trying to trip up someone's chair like an inception. Mean, Never Let Me Go? I do mean Never Let Me oh, Go. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. that one. That's I think that's Romanek. Yeah. So with but he wrote Face it. and Kira Knightley. Yeah, but, yeah, he, but yeah. he wrote it. And like, I didn't know he wrote that. There's it's not an adaptation, a, yeah, isn't it? Not a gag in it. Not yeah. even someone tripping up someone's chair nothing and he sort of and he said he was aware of what he was watching he was like god this is a bit dry isn't it yeah and that's why that mad disco sequence is in ex machina and it and it, you know humor goes a long way breaking bad often gets talked about as being dark it's one of the funniest shows of the past 10 years this is one of the reasons i like game of thrones to the extent that i do with the fervor that i do is because so many of its characters are very funny in their situation. You watch it, right? Yeah, sorry, so, I, sorry I refused to lend you my Now TV box. I thought it was a weird... No, I sorted it out. I thought it was a weird request. I was. I thought it was like asking someone to borrow their Wi-Fi router. I was like, <laughs> no! I, I, I want to watch Barry every day for next yeah. week. You're not which, which I have been watching. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Sandor Clegane and Bronn are hilarious in every scene they're in. The What they say, and it's primarily because what they say is always honest... And forthright, and slightly undermines the situation, and it, it's it's simply human. And the simplest way for me to put this is uh, that sadness doesn't mean anything without the context of happiness. I've always felt this about Nirvana. There are many people who felt themselves to be musicians who listened to Nirvana, felt that they could do that, and you get bands exactly like Stained, and it's only misery. But there wasn't just misery. There was nuance in what Kurt Cobain did with Nirvana. There like were highs as well as lows. Like you think of, um, oh, I heard it on the gym and the radio the other day, uh, In Bloom. Like there is a sort of, humour is not the right word to, but the chord, it's, well, it, the chord strike me is quite seventhy. It sounds like quite a soulful song in a weird way. Uh, it's In Bloom. I never know the names because I just listen yeah. to the album the entire way through. And the video for that is quite funny because it's them doing like a sort exactly. of... Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, a, what, whatever term we want to apply to it, there's an, a, a self-knowledge. Um, it's a bit like Train Spotting. So in like, Train Spotting is very funny. Yes, yeah, And it's a, a great film to watch. It's a caper film in many ways. And the reality of drug addiction is that if you weren't the addict yourself, the stuff they get up to is occasionally enjoyable, somewhat hilarious, because it's so tray, where it's outlaw behaviour. There's another way of putting this. Have you ever been to a funeral and no one's cracked a joke? 
Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So by which I mean, no, I haven't. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because yeah. it's just like, there's always someone to bring levity. My family always deal, you know, we always like have joke, crack jokes at funerals because it's just, it cracks the mood a little bit. It's fun. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. life is best presented in like its many different shades. And uh, well, we've gone quite deep here considering we were talking about how Nolan doesn't have many laughs in his films. Yeah. But it is true. And like, I think Cameron recognises that. And that's why. His, uh, that's just why his films are fun. You know, I don't think Titanic is a great script, but it's fun. I, 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 it's a film that never sags. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Talking of memorable lines, I've beaten this drum for Cameron for a long time. Jack, this is where we first met. I'm the king of the world. Cameron's got significant flack for that for two decades. However, those are memorable. They're honest. Yeah. And in those situations, DiCaprio's character would express that sentiment. Yeah. That's how he feels. And the same with Winslet's character. I think, I honestly think, if I were in that situation or if you were in that situation, the thought would occur to us, well, this is ironic. Three days ago we were here and now we're going to die here. And I think you would voice that. I honestly think you would voice that. And in the moment, our partners might say, fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) But I think... Yeah, there's a, there's a synchrony and um, a mirroring there I used which to, would be commented upon. I always used to get really annoyed. I think it's because I'm a, I aspire to be a comedy writer. I used to get annoyed when you would, they do that the ten the fifth like Empire or Total Film would do the fifty greatest movie lines ever, and it would be stuff like Han Solo saying, "I got a bad feeling about this," because I'd be like, "That's not a good line." No, it's not. It's a great moment. Yeah. But actually, this kind of taps into what we're talking about. And The King of the World isn't a great line, but it's sort of a memorable cinematic moment. I think because I was coming at it from like, I want the, the 50 greatest movie lines to all be Woody Allen quotes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where yeah. it's actually a witty line. But that's not what it's getting at. It's getting at just, you know, Hans Hiller going, I've got a bad feeling about this, is a great cinematic moment. And that's what gives the line power. And I think I think Cameron probably does have that edge over Nolan because Nolan isn't, Nolan's more just about the whole thing clicking together in a very yeah. uh, impressive and maybe even intellectually impressive way. Cameron's not about that, but that's b- 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 to no fault at all. Half of the people on this boat are going to die, not the better half. That speaks entirely to the situation. It speaks to the characters as well. It's what they would say in that situation. A moment of wonderful writing by Cameron, wonderful character work, I think, is uh, Jack teaches Rose how to spit properly. Yeah. Later on, when she is finally severing ties with Caledon Hockley, she spits in his face. Yes. That's a wonderful character moment. That's effective writing. Uh, I'll give you another tiny one which I adore in The Abyss, um, which you you haven't seen. I, I watched it quite a lot when I was younger, but... Not since, and I'm not hugely familiar with it. We're gonna we'll watch it on Laserdisc once I get my Laserdisc player from Birmingham. So I needed to buy a, my original. We'll have to out. because it's not available on Blu-ray. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd forgotten about that. In fact, the Laserdisc forums have been talking about that. Anybody, anytime somebody posts it, they say still not available, and they're waiting for the. I mean, it will for the reconfiguration. It's just, just Cameron has to find some, you know, t- ten minute gap in between yeah. making avatars. Four and five to to, yeah. to remaster it properly. Uh, and now that bloke has gone to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and beaten Cameron's record. There were only two people on the planet who had gone as deep in the ocean as James Cameron. Now we're talking about a film director, yeah. and his hobby is dramatic, groundbreaking ocean exploration. Um, right. So the Abyss takes at its heart uh, a fractious relationship between a divorced couple, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonia, and. Uh, Ed Harris' character still wears his wedding band. It's a piece of titanium, which is representative of 
the characters they are and the environment they work in. Uh, at one point, in immense frustration with his ex-wife, he removes it and hurls it down a chemical toilet and then a moment later dashes back, reaches in, um, pulls it out and for the rest of the film his hand uh, and his wrist to have a uh, blue all over them because it was from the chemical toilet. Anyway, when the installation, the, when the underwater installation in which they live and work floods, the hydraulic portal doors are closing one by one to cut off the flooded parts. Ed Harris is rushing through them and shoves his hand to stop the door and the wedding band stops the closing of the door. A marvellous James Cameron moment. Uh, his life is saved by love. How romantic is that? Perfect character writing from James Cameron. Finding something dramatic but then immersing it in character so it's a reflection of character. I think the only time something Nolan has written has resonated with me is Bane's You Only Adopt the Dark monologue. Yeah. That's uh, that is again. That is an expression of character. Uh, I like Hardy's voice in that. I think he. Tom Hardy does fun voices. I think there's a place. <laughs> I think there's a place for actors. Who's who's another example of that? Daniel Day Lewis does it to an extent, but he's a much better actor. I think there's a place for actors finding a fun voice and doing that fun voice for a film, changing from film to film. Every time I go to see Tom Hardy, I think, what's he going to do this time? It will engage me. Yeah. Even though it, yeah, he's hammy. But it will engage me, and I like him as Bane, and that monologue he gives... You, you think darkness is... Dark, yeah. Mr. Wade. You fight like a younger man. There's nothing held back. It's admirable, but mistaken. Oh, you think darkness is your ally. You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. Molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then it was nothing to me but blinding. The shadows betray you because they belong to me. It speaks to the character of Bruce Wayne and Bane who has, who psychologically has Bruce Wayne's number and now is about to uh, physically cripple him as well. Yeah. Sorry, so what, what have you found for us? Well, this website's got the 15 best quotes, but I don't think they're that good. They've sort I of... Bet they, they're not. They're sort of things that, in the context of the film, work. Yeah. But, like, here's one from Inception. An idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious, and even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. I mean, it's a bit... There's no poetry to that. No, exactly, this is my point. I, this is quite good, I suppose. If you're good at something, never do it for free. That's the Joker. But then I, I imagine that's not something he's actually come up with himself. Yeah. Uh, same with you either die here or live long enough to become the villain. Yeah. I, mean, I actually did think of a fun, a fun one. An example of a good fun Nolan line yeah. is when they're shooting the guys on the roof in Inception and uh, uh, Ian says, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. You know. Oh, yes, yeah. That's fun. And that's in the trailer. They, they obviously must have yeah, seen that yeah. and gone, guys... The, the editing people must have thought who were doing the trailer film. Guys, we found a fun line. Yeah, yeah. We have to that end the trailer good. on this. Um, but again, you know, that, I think that shows it. Like, it's not he's I, not a dialogue man. Yeah, he's, an, he's a big ideas man. And the not reason we've got the reason we're sidetracked with this, the reason we've diverted into this, is because I adore dialogue, and that's one of the primary methods in, with which I connect to piece of film to a piece of. Is television. that because it's that's what is it because that's what's real. 
the way people interact, I guess. I, right, so I think it's because, I, I realised this a few years ago, at heart I'm a comedian. That doesn't mean I'm a professional comedian, but... Mate, I, 150 I, gigs, you're not a comedian. <laughs> <right. laughs> I view everything through the prism of comedy. In most interactions I'm having, unless they are deathly serious or comedy would prevent points being made, I'm honestly thinking of what is the funniest thing <laughs> and the most astutely funny thing that could be said at that time. That's one of the reasons I love those characters in Game of Thrones, because the things they say are honest and funny, and they feel like a true reflection of what is essentially their working-class characters. Getting back to Cameron and Nolan, if we think about what Nolan has at his disposal, he has almost limitless access to Hollywood's actors. I don't know who... Cameron and Nolan? Nolan. I don't know who would turn down a role in one of his films. However... Is there anything in a Nolan picture which is better than Michael Bean in The Terminator? Michael Bean, an actor of limited means, his monologue in The Terminator about it won't be bargained with, it will not stop ever until you are dead, that's panache. Yeah, that's it's a really good dialogue. Yeah. And, and, and actually the whole film rests on that as well. That's like the... The whole film is balancing on that one thing, which is like, it will not stop until you are dead. And that's the film sold in one speech. <laughs> Cyborgs don't feel pain. I do. Don't do that again. Just let me go. Listen and understand that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. I don't think Nolan's equaled that with any of the actors. Now, he remember, he has Christian Bale, who I think with Joaquin Phoenix and Casey Affleck is among the best male actors working today. There are very. I don't think it's worth arguing there are better actors of that age than Christian Bale and, and those other two. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking and yet, about Hollywood cinema, And yet, obviously. even, like, most people agree, not the best Batman. Because cause yeah. actually, it's not a fun... There's nothing really fun about about the way his Batman is presented. I don't even love Batman Begins. I didn't really. The only one I, those films I love is The Dark Knight, and that's yeah. largely because of the Joker. Because actually, the, it's fun. There's actually some dark humor is being injected into this. And yeah. then you go back to Keaton as Batman, and suddenly it is fun. Suddenly it is like you want to get nuts. Come on, let's get nuts. Do you know what I mean? What What's admirable about Nolan's Batman trilogy or Dark Knight trilogy, as we should call it, is yeah, exactly that. He took it away from. Batman and his starting point with Bale was clearly what would make a man do this? Yeah. Why would a victim of trauma then act in this way as an Avenger? How, and that's, Bale has talked about this. He had yeah. to find that that's voice. That's Marvel. It's not DC. <laughs> but uh, Bale had to find the voice and he chatted with his wife and both of them thought uh, it might be a bit absurd. But that's the only way that Bale could find to portray, the, to convey this character, was someone who takes on an entirely different persona to do what they feel is necessary for the benefit of their city, for the benefit of their civilization. That's interesting, and that comes from the character. Um, I like the bit in The Dark Knight, there's a, a witty bit of satire when, um, in the middle of The Dark Knight, during the uh, freeway shootout, that chase sequence, that's... Uh, prologued by a fire engine on fire. That's fun satire <laughs> to me. I don't think anybody even noticed... Uh, sorry, I, I haven't heard that drawn attention to, but I think there's great, grim, 
pastiche there that the Joker has taken a fire engine and it's on fire. It's not a great visual image. I don't think Nolan frames it as well as he could do. And I'm not expecting... Uh, I immediately thought of... Um, that's, maybe that's the point, that it's just meant to be like this side thing. Yeah. That you're not meant to be he doesn't draw attention to it. I mean, that's one of, one of for me, one of Nolan's great failings is he... I don't think he can handle action... Sorry, I'll put it like this. Nolan tried to pull off action in films that are rated, what, 12? Yeah. It's almost impossible. None of his punches... Sorry, very few of his punches connect. And in order to feel the weight of a punch, as has been explained on a really good video on every frame of painting, talking about Jackie Chan, you must see the punch connect. Nolan has to literally pull his punches because he's going for that 12 certificate. Or whatever it is. What is it in America? PG-13. Yeah. I think that's a drawback. I'd like to see Nolan unfurled. And I'll say quickly as well is I think it's uh, I think it's obvious that one of Nolan's best pieces of cinema is Dunkirk and there's hardly any dialogue in it. Yeah. There are acres of... There's acres without a word spoken. The dread summoned in the um, sinking sequence uh, when Harry Styles and the Frenchman, the other fellas... Uh, I always say Finn Wolfhard, but it's not. It's Fionn Whitehead, isn't it? Yeah. Similar names. Get on the boat. As an audience, we're like that Frenchman because nowhere is safe any longer, and so it's proven. That sequence is fantastic. The film shits the bed later on. Luke and I went into great detail about that whenever it was released a year and a half ago. Um, so I disagree on the action front. I think Nolan's a phenomenal action director. And the right, re- right. And the reason I think that is because it's the same reason I think Cameron's a great uh, action director. And I... I, I alluded to earlier they both understand cinematic space this cannot be underrated it's why michael bay is a bad action director it's that he's not really aware that he's building an area a space that the audience understands for the images you've already shown um there's a great uh, and i think like good action directing is often about not having too many shots it's why yeah. we are obsessed now with like long takes just one long continuous shot of someone yeah. doing lots of stuff like in john wick or, or something like that it's because audiences are smart and they know where the cuts are so the the, le- the less of them you can have <laughs> yeah the more impressive it is um you know i always think of that great sequence in terminator 2 i mean it's ludicrous when they flip over the truck and it's sliding along yeah. towards the fact i mean it's it's stupid like it wouldn't slide along but it, but as just a piece of physical something physical that's happening on screen it flips over he goes onto the side he's sort of riding it there's not, there's not that many shots. There's that great bit when it's a stuntman climbs out. Of, he, he tosses the gun into the back of the van. Yeah. Climbs on the top, gets it, picks it up, goes onto the bonnet of the thing that the T-1000's driving, like machine guns the T-1000. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just a fluid shot. Yeah. It's great. And this is why, like, I think building cinematic space kind of in a weird way is easier if you are, if, you, if you're not using that many shots because there's less room to confuse the audience about what's going on. You know, we all know about crossing the line. The reason you don't cross the line is because the audience is then somehow confused about where the audience is sitting. If people don't know what that is, it's literally like if you're filming two people at a dinner table having a conversation, you've got to film all of it from one side of the conversation because if you flip over, it's going to look like uh, the characters have swapped seats. Yeah. That logic kind of does apply to building cinematic space within action scenes and Cameron is really, really good at it. And I honestly think Nolan's good at it as well. I think one of the reasons I a massive arch defender of Inception is that I think that whole idea of they're going into people's heads then they're going into people's heads within people's heads and then the way like all the action plays out after that where like an explosion on one level causes the other level to yeah, yeah. oh no the, the, what is it the, the van is 
rolling down the hill. So then the corridor that Gordon Levitt's yeah. in is is turning like a centrifuge, and then the sl- the sort of snowy slopes there on on the next level down is having an avalanche. Yeah, I think that's got a, that's a good demonstration of a director who knows that all these areas are kind of affecting each other, and I, I think it's phenomenal. When I am when I'm critical of Nolan's action, I specifically mean the fights. I think and and the the gunfights. I remember in Dark Knight Rises. We, uh, the audience is given a shot of Matthew Modine raising his automatic weapon, then a shot of a baddie turning sight towards Matthew Modine, then Matthew Modine's on the floor. That's not enough. I, I think... Oh, this is the 12 thing, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think Nolan is trying to use an editing style not unlike Terence Malick. It's almost like he's trying to take what he's learned from Terence Malick and apply that discipline to action and it's almost incompatible. However, I, I agree with you that he, outside of uh, gunshots and hand-to-hand combat, Nolan does some very good work. And um, I like... I'll try and be careful about how I say this. I like the intricacy of his plotting. And I don't mean in a J.J. Abrams-style Easter eggs, twisty-turny... <laughs> I mean that... I always say that's that's for the tourists. Yeah. Stuff like that. Uh, oh, oh, wow. No. But Nolan, Nolan's very good, and particularly in Inception, he's plotting to express character. There's a, a clever synthesis. Well, you mean like how, like... Yeah, help me with my point. I think you know what I mean. Well, yeah, I think plot should be expressed in character. It's why exposition is bad. I mean, no exposition is relevant, is necessary sometimes, but I guess, did you mean like how DiCaprio... The whole driving point force behind Inception is the idea that the main character, uh, Dom Cobb, Dominic Cobb, is that yeah, his name? Yeah. Has basically done something horrible to his wife. He lied. He basically, it's about a man who lied to his wife, and yeah. that lie ended up killing her. Yeah. But it's wrapped in this this science fiction plot of like he realized if he went into her dreams and planted an idea deep enough, he that might be able to save her from her own fantasies. But actually, yeah. it meant that she could never accept reality, and she threw herself off a bridge. Yeah, like, that's what, what yeah. I mean. Yeah, what I mean is that when Nolan has an idea, and um, this is all inference, but when Nolan has an idea, puts pen to paper, and then thinks about the very best way of conveying those themes, hatches uh, then latches onto. Uh, an interesting method of presenting that. So, Memento isn't gimmicky because the best way of showing that character experiencing those things is its back to front plotting. That's that there are the reason the very reason we're uh, enraptured by it is because he's struck upon the best way to show that happening. And I think the same with the Prestige. The Prestige is to large extent epistolary. There'll be scenes where Jackman is reading the diary of Bale, who's recounting the exploits of Jackman and Bale. Which, and that's an interesting way to explain, to, to convey themes of um, perspective and constant double-crossing. Because there are elements where, I think in The Prestige, even the diary itself is a subterfuge. That's very... That, that's, yeah. I like that. And Inception, again, it, the, it isn't a gimmick... The, the most interesting way to explore those themes and present that action is, as you've said, this cascading effect. And, and, and it speaks to, we should say as well, I think Inception's particularly successful because it's about filmmaking. Each of those characters is an analogue for a part of the filmmaking process. 
I remember um, particularly... Oh, you mean that is the architect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dilip Rao's character, for instance, I think is meant to represent the SFX guys. And he, <laughs> it, what we, there's a moment where... So is he the Indian guy who makes yeah, the Yeah, who's in Avatar as well. And Drag Me to Hell, all at the same time. And then I don't know what he's done since. But the truck rolls down the hill, he steers it out of a, a death spiral... Then he looks around to the rest of them and they're all sleeping. And I think that's as if to say, yeah, SFX done well won't be commented upon and you'll get no, you know, there'll be no platitude or uh, applause whatsoever. And yeah, you can go through that film and it's it's abundantly clear that Leonardo DiCaprio is Christopher Nolan. They dress the same, they look the same. (laughs) DiCaprio is just a Hollywood version. It's essentially Nolan. Who would play me? If I, there were a film of my life, no, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> and it's at every level. I think that, yeah, Ariadne is the writer. They have the same hair, don't they? Arthur's the producer. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> I mean, this is all blatant and it's all blatant. I, first time I saw it, I thought, yeah, this is it. Tom Hardy literally plays an actor in it, doesn't he? Yeah. He takes on the persona of Tom... Sorry, he... He is Tom Berenger at certain points. Yeah. So I, I like... The he's com- also the blonde girl. He gets into the yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. I like the complexity of that. Uh, and I'm not going to say that Nolan is all technique and no passion. That's not accurate. But he is at his. He's a technician to begin with, and I think this, like, he'll never be Kubrick until he engages with satire and with essentially a bit of humanity. Which is ironic because people humanity is the thing people have often accused Kubrick of lacking. I disagree. I think there is humanity in it. Um, you know, it's funny, he's sort of been made into Stella as a reaction to people who said his films did lack emotionality. So he made a big film all about it, about fathers and daughters and love and all this kind of thing. But I don't know, I think it, I do think it's embedded in there. And as I say, Inception, this whole idea of it's like about a man and a wife and he's lied to the wife and all that kind of thing. Um, You're right, with Interstellar, it does, he uses the, he uses cinematic techniques to inspire emotion. So the sequence that, for some fucking reasons, uh, some cinema audiences didn't like because the the sound went over the dialogue the moment i think it's um the young jessica chastain runs out to see mcconaughey he's driving away then there's a rocket ship taking off remember yeah. that oh, it's in, just like a big it's just a huge jump cut it's like yeah he's leaving so it just intercuts it with utterly him, yeah. su- utterly superb and that, that got me and there's a the, he uses a similar technique later on and then of course the entire precept of dunkirk was uh what if i took that escalation theme that i do in all of my films about two-thirds in and just did that for a whole film. What yeah. would happen? And it was exciting. As I say, the first... It's pure... Why? Well, like 45 minutes of Dunkirk's amazing. You're right, it is pure cinema. While I look, that's yeah. what I love about it. You very rarely see pure cinema. In fact, it's so much pure cinema that it's actually made me think of other things that I've called pure cinema and gone on. Maybe, like, I've always called Jurassic Park pure cinema. But then I think... Yeah. No, but they do sit around and talk for 20 minutes at one point. That's like a play. So it's like, that's yeah. how close he gets it to is, that. At, at his best, Nolan is recalibrating. For all of these reasons... He is probably a better... Yeah, he is a better director than Cameron. I'll I'll say, though, that we talked about the levity and the humour and the level of humanity and um, camaraderie that Cameron always portrays and and properly conveys in his films. And I think if we were to make a slightly glib assessment, Cameron came out of the Coleman production line. And I think there's just uh, a greater working-class earthiness there. Didn't go to film school. Yeah, Cameron, as far as I'm aware, didn't go to film school. Learned on the job on pictures such as Follow Escape me. from New York. Sorry? Oh, sorry, you're talking about Cameron, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nolan went to film school at UCL, I think. I, I, haven't, do, seen I, do... e- I haven't seen either of their first films. I haven't seen Following and I haven't seen Piranha 2 this morning. 
<laughs> oh dang! You know I've got following on VHS. Oh. I'll have to lend it you, mate. I haven't got VHS player. <laughs> I know. I'm living in the 4K realm. It, the um, following's the only Nolan picture on Criterion, actually. Um, following's very good, and Piranha Two should be that should actually, be I just, discounted. I sort of just realised I sort of defended the humanity of his films, but then I could only think of two examples because actually, a lot of them are quite cold. They are just about big ideas and not people interacting with each other so you know maybe there probably is more humanity uh, all the running all the way through you know comes like you know aliens one of the greatest film one of the greatest action films ever and it's got all this military hardware and all this jock military action but it's ultimately about a woman who's lost her daughter yeah and who then finds a surrogate and then who has to protect her daughter and then the whole final action scene is that it's just two mothers at war yeah you yeah know, obviously yeah. terminator 2 is more explicitly a film about family uh, True Lies maybe in a less clever way but that's obviously kind of about family yeah it's the same thing but yeah, yeah you're right yeah. definitely less clever yeah <laughs> not, not unentertaining though but it, yeah it's, it's fantastic that when on a, on a picture in which he's less invested James Cameron can nevertheless make something as ex- as exciting and fun as True well, Lies well this is my theory that you can often really if you want to see what's great about a direct, a really truly great director watch their worst film yeah, and see what still bleeds through. So it's like it's like Huck with Spielberg. It's not it's not yeah. totally shit. It's actually no. there's an element of magic in there that's real. Uh, True Lies, I guess we could call that his weakest film, maybe or, or that. Yeah, because we you can't include Piranha Two because yeah, exactly. He, he, yeah, he exactly. left the project himself. So yeah, but it's still an absolutely solid action film with a beating heart running all the way yeah. through it. I'd say The Dark Knight Rises is probably Nolan's worst one, but you've already met you've already cited it a couple of times. You know, it's got the Bane character is fun. You know, mm. it's visually it's epic you know it's not a boring film by any means it's just a film that doesn't make a jot of sense even within its own comic book reality um but this is a thing like these are we would neither of us be disputing that either director is great and you can tell because even when they're on a down day it's still pretty pretty solid i want to speak to the pioneering work that james cameron has done with the female leads in his films. Which is a weakness in Nolan's films. He's not obliged to make yeah, films about yeah. women. But, uh, and we, 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 yeah. Aidan and I have joked about this, and I won't rehash those jokes, but I think that in an environment which, over the last three years, has um, spoken stentorian about Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, I have felt James Cameron has been ignored and discounted from the like, conversation. No, hang on a minute. We, we, this has come up before. Go on, go on. <laughs> Give me your rebuttal. Yeah, you You sometimes think that when people talk about praise like say modern examples of like say strong women in Hollywood or strong female characters in Hollywood yeah. that it's somehow a dismissal of everything that came before I don't think it is you, you did it in the previous podcast when you went what about Thelma Schoolmaker and it's like well yeah she's great and Anne V. Coates is great oh, no. but it doesn't mean that the statistics are wrong do you know what I mean and I don't think anyone is negating it. In fact, actually, often when you if you actually sit down and listen to a proper conversation, let's say you listen to a deep a deep a podcast where they go deep on the issue of female representation in Hollywood, yeah. they will always point to things like aliens and like how you know uh, Terminator and Sarah Connor and all those kind of all things. of them though. Everything that Cameron's ever done is strong female. Yeah, leads. no, it's true. Even and, Avatar has yeah, Materi. She's and, way stronger than uh, and. Since yeah, I, I won't belabor the point because you've got my number on this one, and, and <laughs> I'd forgotten that we've clearly had this conversation on pod seven or eight times. But um, not only are these strong female characters, but they are without doubt female characters. Uh, so for a good example Mothers, of this, for is, example, yeah, like Salt, the In Angelina fact, Jolie picture yeah. was meant to be Tom Cruise. Yeah, they simply gender flipped it and changed nothing about it. But yeah, all of the all of James Cameron's female leads are wives daughters 
Well, mothers. literally, Terminator, Terminator 2, Aliens, True Lies, Mothers. Yeah. Every single one. Now, he does have, in Michelle Rodriguez and in Jeanette Goldstein, he does have the typical... Um, manly Masculine woman. woman. But yeah. That's fine, but, but that but this is the thing. But they that, are, the other thing. That's is fine that, though because he's doing. He, oh he, yeah, yeah. He's got lots of humor because he actually have different types. One of the overriding things that I love about Cameron is that his uh, his system of merit is simply based on ability. He, he where he operates, and definitely the characters of Aliens seem to operate in a society where gender is irrelevant. It's simply can you do the job? That's how James Cameron's always been. I, I like his. Uh, I like that he's ploughed through wives that are all his... too strong for him. No, but that's <laughs> but it's true of his work and his life. Yeah, yeah. Galen Hurd produced his first three or four films. Um, he was married to Catherine Bigelow, one of the yeah. most notable female director working in Hollywood right now, probably. And I, 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 I fucking adore that. I'm very romantic about it. I remember when they were head-to-head for the Academy Award, him with Avatar, her with the Hurt Locker, and I thought that's just perfect because... And he was human and he was very humble about it. He's like, she should win. Yeah. Oh, she she oh, literally yeah, deserved yeah. to. And he had one, he's got three Oscars anyway. And so. I like that. I like James Cameron has gone on record saying that his great problem with relationships is that he loves strong women who are so strong they don't need him. <laughs> I think it's very. That's good. It's, it? it's noble and honest. No, is noble the word? I, I think it's honest and admirable that someone can pursue that in a relationship, can hope to get with someone so, so independent that they don't require the other person, they choose them rather than needing them. And this is one reason why Cameron, as I said, has had four ex-wives. Linda Hamilton's another, he was the fourth, and then he's been with Susie Amis for the last 20-odd years. Uh, I, I, I'm very pleased that, I, that Cameron spoke to me at an early age when I was figuring stuff out about the world and about gender. He wasn't the only one to teach me this, but Cameron certainly taught me everyone's, everyone's equal, it's about... Uh, ability, intelligence, application, determination, and yet, as I said, and we'll, we'll, it bears repeating that his female characters are defiantly female. That Sarah Connor is a mother. That um, Ripley is a mother as well, and uh, as you say, a grieving mother, a mother who's lost her daughter, and luckily enough finds another. And I've always thought it's a um, there's a a fun family dynamic in her new Hicks and Bishop as a. A slightly odd uncle, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says it. He says it. That's like there's, there's even a shot in it where like they're all cradling each other. I think it's after they've stopped the face huggers in the uh, yeah in the lab. Yeah, when Hudson's wedged it against the wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you see the three of them as like sort of makeshift family unit. Father, yeah, father, uh, father yeah. and daughter. I love that. It ca- it's never been Cameron's intention to negate any part of femininity in portraying a woman. The um, and it's the maternal instincts that fire. The, 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 a very honest depiction of maternal instincts that fire Sarah Connor through the second one. Um, which mother doesn't think that their son is the most important person in the world? That they truly that they they will go on to do great things and must be protected at all costs. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that in Terminator Two, she's got evidence that yeah, this this is Jesus Christ. Basically, yeah. <laughs> we need this guy. Yeah. But that's how all mothers. We see it now with uh, with helicopter parenting, and I think uh, families, sorry, uh, couples deciding to have children much later maybe only getting one kid, and that kid is of paramount importance. There isn't anything they wouldn't do for that kid. Uh, a, too great a burden is placed upon these kids in terms of expectations, but also the importance of uh, the, the importance they have in, in the life of those people. There, Too many people, well, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a, a seesaw. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, I think parents didn't give enough of a shit about their kids. And they, <laughs> um, my dad and, and his brothers ran feral <laughs> as, as much as they liked. Now there is too great an emphasis, I feel, 
but let's move on because I think we're now we're moving in. We're going over old ground. I feel there's so much more that needs to be said about Cameron and Nolan. I don't think we can fit it all into one podcast. But what I mean, other thoughts do you I mean, have? The, the great strength of Nolan. I mean, it, it has been interesting compared because it's easy to go well. Nolan is like the best blockbuster filmmaker currently working because he's just easy know, and true. I mean, yeah. Right? I mean, even you don't like him as much as me. But I remember even you saying after Dunkirk, at least he's trying. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, I mean, he's he's as far as he can. He's trying to stretch the medium he's in, and it's great to see somebody at, at the top of their commercial viability making using a film, it for good yeah you're making a film like Dunkirk yeah. no who who do you think um, of the audience that that saw Dunkirk and it did very well in the UK particularly who do you suppose went to Dunkirk as one of the six films they saw at the cinema and thought it was anything like anything else they'd seen that year I mean this is what I mean about like there's been um, you know Tim Key Oh, the poet, because, yeah. comedian, yeah. yeah, the comedian, yeah. I took my old man to see Tim Key because although my dad likes comedy, I knew he would never have seen anything like Tim Key's. Yeah. Um, what what was we saw? Uh, Megadate. Yeah. I, have you seen that one? I think so. I think I saw a preview. It was it recent? Was it in the last two years? Yeah, yeah. And I this is the one where he opens the show by flicking open the can of beer and uh, shaking it up, flicking open the can of beer, and then uh, sh- uh, placing it in his armpit. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't overflow everywhere, and then uh, drenching himself with tenants. <laughs> and I thought my my dad needs to see that because he will have he will have no precedent for that experience. Yeah. And watching it will think that guy's he's sopping wet. Yeah. How's he going to do the rest of the show? <laughs> yeah. And my dad's not naive; he's no rube. But still, <laughs> and in the same way, what what Nolan did with Dunkirk will have opened up the eyes of an audience to something besides the other ten, twelve blockbusters they see in that year. Yeah. That's a. That's imperative. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think he's definitely. I think he is interested in showing you things we haven't seen before. You know what it is? It's what is it? It's necessary. That's what yeah. he fucking says in Interstellar, isn't it? That's a line I like. But again, that's by the. Oh no, that's McConaughey talking to the robot. Isn't it? I can't remember. It's necessary. I have seen it a few times. But that's that sequence. Is, that sequence in Interstellar is superb when um, Matt Damon fucks everything up, and uh, it's only through. McConaughey's very human ability, greater even than a robot, that he saves the day. That yeah. sequence is fantastic. Sorry, I've, I've uh, sidetracked you there. No, I'm not sure what my point's going to be. I just think it's. Uh, I think he's interested in showing you original things you haven't seen before. You know, instead of gets dismissed by some people as being kind of 2001 light. I think that's fairly. I think that's. It's far too flippant, you know. Yeah. That whole thing he did of like getting in um, Kip Thorne to advise on what would this phenomenon actually look like, and then trying to get as close to possible mathematically is what it might look like. That's a process thing. But the fact is, what you see on screen when they go through the wormhole, when they approach the black hole, doesn't look like anything I've ever seen in cinema before. And actually, yeah. in that sense, I think it is comparable to 2001. Like, I mean, may I'm not saying it's quite as good as that, but the fact is, the reason 2001 blew people's minds is because. You watch that Beyond the Infinite sequence, and it's it's, men, it's mental they made that in 2001. Yeah. It is astonishing. They called it a trip without acid. Yeah. That's what they called it at the time. And I think there's an incomparable in that. In an age of CGI where you can put anything on a screen, it's very, very rare to be like, I've not seen anyone do anything like that before. That was, that was really, really impressive. Whether it's the sort of spherical wormhole that kind of almost looks like a glass ball in space. Yeah. Um, and the way they approach it and go through it, or just, you know... You know, approaching the black hole with all these sort of like just epic seas of fire just being sucked into it. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's really, really strong. Make and also there's a sort of 
and this is like a, a sort of weird point, I imagine, but like when they there's a shot where they're approaching Saturn, it's just Saturn in darkness. There's no stars because that's what that's what planets look like in space. Yeah. If you approach a planet too close, you can't see the stars because the light's blind. That's reflecting off the planet is blinding them. Yeah. But most filmmakers aren't don't quite have the guts to show you that. Even Quran and Gravity has to show you the stars because there'd be no frame of reference for any for anything True. that happens yeah. in the entire yeah. film. Um, and yet he did just that great shot. It's just black planet spaceship approaching yeah. and it's beautiful and it, and it actually kind of emphasises like the, just the, the loneliness of being in that situation you uh, know like those sequences show us things that we that we haven't ever seen before yeah. and they're shot practically and on film we didn't even mention it yet this is the other thing and even like you know you can legitimately criticise um Interstellar for going into a little bit of a fifth element, love can save everything kind of yeah. funk in yeah, yeah, act. Yeah. But the fact is, when you're watching him, you know, suspended, I, I can't remember, he's like suspended in, a, what's, the, what's that thing where it's a cube? Uh, tesseract. Yeah, he's suspended that, in a yeah. tesseract, and it's just these bands of light that basically represent him being behind the bookshelf that his daughter's yeah. in, and he's like banging on the thing, like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to leave, he doesn't want, no, he's trying to, sorry, He's trying to tell himself in the past, don't leave, don't leave, stay with stay with your daughter. Yeah. But not only is that just quite powerful emotionally, especially considering everything you've seen in the film up to that point. Again, when have you ever seen anything that looks like that? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's astonishing. He's he's a, he's a great he's a great visualist. I think he always yeah he's always I'm repeating myself now. He always gives you something you have not seen before. And actually, to be honest, that's kind of why Avatar's also big. Cameron usually always gives you something you haven't seen before as well. Yeah. And there's very few of his films, like what, maybe True Lies, where he didn't give you some kind of spectacle um, that was truly original in cinema up until that point. And that's why Avatar has no cultural footprint, because the characters are essentially rubbish. It's not hugely original conceptually. It is, you know, dances with wolves with Smurfs. But it looked like nothing we'd ever seen before. And... Yeah, I can actually tie this into the Avengers thing. I've been thinking about fandom a lot lately, because although I'm a cinema fan first, I am a Star Trek fan, I'm a Doctor Who fan, and I, I've been thinking, what is it about these things that people get obsessed about? And I've realised it's because it's, it's that second world element. Sorry, second life element. Yeah. You, you sometimes just want to immerse yourself in another universe that's quite detailed, which is why people are drawn to those things. It's why people are draw, drawn to the Marvel thing. And this is why you did have people like in, in Asian countries going to see Avatar... <laughs> ten times because they wanted to live in that world. Yeah. It was a hyper real it was hyper real and it was something you could step into and probably immerse yourself for two hours. Um What you've spoken to is exactly <coughs> how I feel about Boogie Nights. I can't deny it. I have that impulse to immerse myself in that environment, in that carefully realised environment again and again. Uh, I'm not saying that the way that I do it is necessarily more sophisticated, but it definitely comes from the same impulse to spend time with those characters, to live yeah. among those characters, live in the late 70s, early 80s with Boogie Nights, and with Zodiac, just, yeah, be invested in that milieu, in San Francisco, in California, in the late 60s, early 70s, walk those roads with those people. To, I don't know, to, yeah. I don't know if cineasts realise that that's what they're doing if they see Godfather 12 times. Because I, I think as well that um, if you're truly into cinema, then after the first three views, you are looking at... Uh, you're looking at camera angles, composition, editing, every element of cinema and how it's made. But definitely, like with Apocalypse Now, when I watch that, I can't help but be drawn in and w want to be among those people. 
want to live with really? those people. Oh, yeah, I think you're, you're on the river with them. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's an element of it. Yeah, I, I always think of the Doolong Bridge and just imagine. He says you're in the arsehole of the world, and I think imagine being that close to insanity. Because yeah. that's what that war is, and that they are at the the liminal between um, civilization and something that is not. This is the last stop before the apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Maybe we've <laughs> finally reached reached agreement. So actually, I guess what we're saying is there are there are there are things that are very similar about both of them. I have no doubt Cameron's a massive. Uh, I have no doubt that Nolan is a massive Cameron fan. Um, yeah, yeah. He likes. You know, he obviously likes that technical showman element. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the man who can, you know, is a technical master of what he does and can con- conjure these big shows for you to go and see. Um, Cameron doesn't stretch the medium like Nolan does. We've been talking about Dunkirk. He stretches... It's interesting, actually. He stretches visual effects. Yeah. He knows he's like Zemeckis. Um, and Lucas, I guess, to a certain extent. He knows the limitations of special effects, which allows him to both push it without it ever looking naff. Yeah, that's what he's that's what he's really good at. But yeah, I think, and this is why again, you've hit on why I think Nolan is better. I think Nolan is stretching the form. I think Dunkirk. Yeah. I know you have issues with it, but that more the more to do with the script. It does as as a piece is unlike any filmmakers before. And you, I want to see more people yeah. push out at the boundaries of narrative like that. It reminded me of Intolerance by D. W. Griffith, which I've seen only once in San Francisco film studies class. I prefer his earlier racist. <laughs> and that Intolerance has. I think it's Intolerance has three or four story strands, um, and every uh, in between those strands, it flashes back to a baby rocked in a cradle, and there's something about that which I felt linked to Dunkirk, and it's in. I mean, it's it's interesting because I've talked about Nolan as a technician, as one of among the best technicians that's working today. And yet he is not the one that's pushing forward with uh, special effects in the way that Cameron always has done. Yeah. So Cameron's technical innovation is tremendous. I mean, he's behind um, Digital Domain and every film he's made has pushed the envelope somehow. Maybe the... But, the way he, but nevertheless, the way he scripts films and writes films puts them firmly in that McTiernan, Verhoeven, Bigelow, 80s firmament. But... Nolan is trying to do express something slightly different with the medium in a way that Cameron has never pursued and probably never will. So that is bloody interesting. Maybe they're although, so you, although you that... could argue he was doing it inadvertently at one point because you know ultimately when he made Terminator Two, he was blowing up office blocks. You know what I mean? He was getting stuntmen to like ride through, <laughs> yeah, ride bikes off you know, through windows and then, like, land on a, a helicopter. He was doing all that stuff practically, but that's because he had to. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't because of some, like, uh, fetishism, which we now have for, for the idea of, pra- of practical yeah. effects. Oh, I need to rant about Terminator Dark Fate. Oh, yeah, okay. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, we'll, we'll sign off with that, then. Give yeah. us five minutes on that. Right, so I genuinely am quite angry about the existence of Terminator Dark Fate, and it's for this reason that... And there's a link to this, because obviously Terminator, uh, Cameron films, Cameron is involved weirdly with Dark Fate, he helped with the story and he's producing it. I think, and you know, this can actually tie, ties into what we spoke about at the top of the show, about like, why is it that we want Avatar to remain the greatest, highest grossing film ever, even though I think it's better and you accept that it's probably better than Avatar, yeah, yeah. Endgame is better than Avatar. Um, and it's this, 
It's annoying that they keep making shit Transformers films, but it makes sense yeah. because they make a lot of money. Yeah. What really frustrates me with the whole Terminator thing is like they have not made a hit film in this franchise since 1991. Every single sequel they've made since then has like massively underperformed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, not massively, but that's actually the leading question. Yeah, they're not flops, it, but they're not making the money they yeah, should have done. Exactly. Considering that, what, T2, was it the biggest film of its year? Yeah, easily. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it, it, but it's not even like we're saying that, it's not even like... Oh, Genesis was the sixth biggest. They're, they're, they're just not making that much money. Mm. Not make, losing much money, they're not making that. The people are not interested in this franchise, and no one has demonstrated thus far that there's anything more to be done with this franchise. Yeah, yeah. And it, so it offends me more that they're making Terminator Dark Fate starring Linda Hamilton than it does that they're probably going to make another Transformers film. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and what winds me up is that people are getting sucked into it. They're like, Hamilton's back. It's like, did you not watch the last three fucking Terminator yeah. films? They're not good. And also, like, you know, going going back into the whole thing about practical effects versus CGI, Tim Miller's next effects artist. And there were whole sequences in Deadpool, his previous film, where it's created in the computer. Now, admittedly, some of it I didn't realize. I did not realize that when I was watching it with some sequences. Yeah. So he can do it fairly well. But, you know, when you watch the trailer for Terminator Dark Fate, which dropped this week, it's just not good. Because you're still getting that sense of digital fatigue you get with most modern films. Because you know everything has been created in a computer. Mm. You know, apart from the actors, you know that they've just animated it from scratch. And this is why Terminator 2 is great. This is why Jurassic Park's great. Because they had to film 85% of it and then do the thing afterwards. And then match the digital elements to the photo elements. And that's how you get photorealistic effects. And we're all being hoodwinked by Dark Fate. Because they, they released, as well as the trailer, they released a thing about how they're doing all these practical effects in it. And it's fucking bullshit. Yes, they blow up a few cars. Yeah. Yes, a stuntman is on a wire that gets like punched and then he spins around and like hits a wall. But I think you're getting a lot of modern directors now who are doing that stuff and thinking, I'm doing practical effects. Yeah, and actually, yeah. no, 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 you're not. You're doing a few, I don't know, you're tipping your head to it a little bit and then you're going to go into a computer after the fact and create your, your signature set piece entirely using pixel, uh, digital yeah. pixels. Do you, do you yeah. know what I mean? And then that and that is what separates, you know, Nolan and and well, Cameron's a bad example now because he probably would create it all on a computer. But because as I say, because in he for Avatar, yeah, yeah, but because he understands how that works, what the limitations yeah, are, yeah. he knows how to make it look good. Um, and you know, that's why Nolan doesn't. That's why Nolan knows if the action set piece of your thing is going to be a truck flipping over, then flip it over, and it will just look a lot better. Yeah. And you know, uh, I'm not saying that the Dark Fate trailer set the world on fire, but it does just seem like people. I, you know, it's just like, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times, you mm. know. This is literally the fourth time they've attempted to do this. It is almost certainly going to be at best average. Yeah. And, you know, I think you, you can look at that and see everything that's wrong with modern cinema. Yes, I'm prejudging it slightly, but everything that's wrong with it, the obsession with franchises to the point when it's not even like you're making Avengers 4, which makes financial sense, is yeah. that you're making Terminator 6, which doesn't make any financial sense because the films don't flop. But as long as you've got a brand that is somehow recognisable... Fuck it, it's worth throwing another $150 million at yeah, it. Yeah, it feels like something from the 20s or 30s, uh, you know, m making eight Thin Man films. Yeah. A property's available, you know that every three years you churn one out. Uh, I think and then that... you introduce an element into it, so you go, with Genesis, you go, hey, Schwarzenegger's back. Hey, yeah, that's yeah. fun, right? And with this one, they're going, hey, Hamilton's back. What, yeah. well, they don't want them to do in four years, they're going to make another one. And they go, hey, Edward Furlong's back, yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> He's off the dope and he's yeah. cleaned up, yeah. What's the last shot of Terminator 2? It's the road, isn't it? It's the road yeah. going under the under the van. 
and she does her speech about the end of the world or whatever. Or how, no, she does a speech about how time's not written, we can write our own yeah. thing, blah, blah, blah. That's That came out of limitations, which is the original end they filmed, which is like, I think then with prosthetics looking old, was rubbish. And that oh, was, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so he had to like make write this narrative uh, he had to, so he had to take that bit of speech and like, what can we put it against? And it just so happened that this footage of the of the road that is taken from the earlier point in the film when they're approaching the Cyberdyne building yeah. was just long enough that they could put it under the speech and then fade to yeah. black and it'd be fine. And this is what I mean, But it wouldn't happen now because Cameron would just be like, I don't know what he'd do. He'd just CGI the road. Yeah, off. there's such ingenuity and limitations. Cameron knows that because, he came, as I said, he came out of that... Uh, out of working with Roger Corman, yeah, exactly. where you literally reuse sets. The sets are up for three weeks, and you make three films from those same sets dressed slightly differently. Yeah. Uh, reusing footage, even Cameron's uh, sorry, Corman has done that regularly, and Cameron learned in that in that hot house environment. Um, I think that increasingly, just as we said about Obama leading to Trump there will be, among young filmmakers, a backlash against yep. what they've been given, and they will go back to Walter Hill, James Cameron, Paul Verhoeven. They will want practical effects because they haven't had them for a, what, a while, whether it's 10 years or 20 years. They'll, what, they'll crave that. Maybe you're seeing that now with like all this John Wick stuff. and like. Uh... For me, um, uh, my first interaction... I saw John Wick, but my first thorough interaction with that was Atomic Blonde, which is by Stahelski. Oh, no, sorry. Stahelski and Leitch. <laughs> I forget which ones are doing. One of them has done Deadpool and something else. So they, yeah, they, so they this they did. I think they did one one or two together, and then Leitch did Atomic Blonde on his own, and the synthesis um, between. Uh, well, it's the augmentation of practical effects with smart digital filmmaking. Um, and in Atomic, you've seen Atomic Blonde. Yeah. It, it means that instead of seven cuts, you can have a long sequence, which does it, it no longer feels showy like it might have done fifteen years ago, but reflects that what it conveys is the attritional nature of the bat, of the fights they have, the the fisticuffs in which they're engaging. Um, that it really does take, you know, people can fight for ten seconds and be exhausted after that. And my favourite fight in Atomic Blonde is one where they're literally crouching to catch their breath before the, the next assault begins. Yeah, it's yeah. That, and that's real and honest. And that method of filmmaking works. And Luke's talked about it, how hopefully um, what more films now are realising we don't need to CG fireballs and stuntmen, but we can take out the wires, take yeah. out the bungee cords, um, take out the piston that shoots the car into the air and flips it. More convincingly, digitally edit together five shots of yeah, practical yeah. effects. Yeah. Do all of that. Because I don't think that humans will necessarily ever reach a point where they overcome the uncanny valley and uh, CG CG humans look as realistic as real humans. I, I, and it's, it's just simply not there's necessary just, anyway. Of, we don't a, need it. There's a shot of a horizon in Dunkirk that really blew me away. And it's, from, it's when they're in the planes and you kind of just see the, um, the channel... Uh, channel Ocean, I forgot what it's called. The Channel. The, the English Channel the English, is what we sorry. call it, yeah. Everyone else calls it The Channel. I, I know think. about films, I don't know anything about <laughs> water masses. Um, uh, and it's amazing. And But there's a sort of, I don't know how to describe this, there's just, it's just a shot of a horizon from very high up that look is striking and epic. And yeah. you couldn't create it in a computer. I mean, you could create a horizon in a computer, which wouldn't look like this. The light would be wrong. And it just immerses you, you in it more. One of the most interesting things I think about Dunkirk is... Um, 
And it's why I defend the bit you don't like. You don't like basically when the kid dies, do you? That's your big gripe with it, right? Um, I'm trying to think. When the kid falls down the stairs and like bangs his head. Uh... Yeah, because it creates a false jeopardy that the film until then eschewed. But then all at once, around the 50 minute mark, it injects three elements of artificial jeopardy. So it's the kid, the kid falling down, but also um, the Scotch fella who's not actually Scottish, uh, trapped in the canopy. It's executed well. But nevertheless, I shouldn't see that in a Christopher Nolan film. Someone as savvy as Christopher Nolan shouldn't have a bloke in a canopy beating against it while water. Nah, that's that's from a you know a, <laughs> that's from a thriller in the late eighties. That's something with Madeleine Stowe. That's just silly. <laughs> but go ahead, go, go ahead. The reason I defend it is because what amazes me about that is like I've always said like character, good characters what immerse you in stuff. It's not true of Dunkirk. Because yeah. There's no character detail at all at any point in the film, mm. and I don't know if it's just that you know it's about a real story and it's being presented with, to you in a hyper-real way because of the way it's filmed, that that's naturally what draws you in. Um, I mean, that element of it is interesting. The reason I'm slightly defensive of the kid dying thing, even though maybe it's a bit cheap, is that I actually wonder if modern audiences are slightly inured to the tragedy of a soldier's death. Oh, yeah. And I think that's... Undeniable. Yeah, yeah. and actually, like... You know, ever since Saving Private Ryan, it doesn't mean anything to you to see a soldier die. Even though all our grandfathers did this, mm. it's still there's still a disconnect. And I sort of wonder if I wonder if Nolan actually needs to throw an innocent child down down some steps in order to uh, make you feel some amount of tragedy in this in this uh, massive stuff that's happening. Now, maybe right, maybe it's the cheapest way he could have possibly done it, but I don't know. Uh, that's certainly how. That's just how, how I felt about it, anyway. I think, yeah, on the face of it, that viewpoint's valid to me. Yeah. And I think it's definitely the case that the audiences are inured to the annihilation of human life, but particularly male life, in action sequences in war films. We've had this in Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people dying, but uh, it doesn't affect the viewer and. Because I, I think it's just understood that men die in war. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I think it's interesting to see what will, what it will mean now that women are uh, permitted to serve on the front line. I think there will be a, a sudden limitation and better under, uh, a better examination of um, engagement. Yeah. Because men die. You know, that's the way of the world. But yeah. your daughter dying on the front line, that's... that's a little bit like what the Joker says. That is not all part of the plan. Yeah. <laughs> Women aren't meant to die in warfare. And uh, s- female soldiers, it- it's a completely different paradigm. A paradigm that we... I mean, the IDF has always had women on the front line, but Israel was one of the only nations in the world, organised nations, that is, that's ever had it. I'm sure in various... Uh, well, Russia had women doing what they needed to do in World War Two. Um, yeah, OK. So, yeah, that that is diverting. Uh, and it's probably right. There isn't that much action in Dunkirk there are um... even the even the shots of like when planes are shooting each other they don't really feel like action scenes because it's quite basic if yeah, there's no there's no choreography is the wrong word but it's not like a plane goes down in a cool way it just goes down in the way a plane would go down but again maybe in a digital age the, you know that hyper realness of it because he did film actual planes doing that or bigotries yeah. or whatever. Bigotries, yeah, I love that. Word. <laughs> it's more like a survival drama. Something. Did you ever see The Grey with Liam Neeson? No. That's fucking brilliant. 
it's not the film that it was advertised as that people think that it is. Instead, it's properly so the wolf meditative. Doesn't, the wolf doesn't take Neeson's daughter. Right? <laughs> and, he's like... and he goes after it with a cosh. Yeah. Uh, but, and Dunkirk is more like that. It's, yeah, it's, in, it's important that Nolan chooses to never show the aggressors until the very end and then they're only blurred because that's not what it's about. It's a story about the overcoming of adversity being enough. That that fortitude is itself a victory, as they talk about at the very end of the film. Well, yeah, because it's not. It wasn't a victory. It was a retreat. Yeah, uh, but the film understands that, and and Churchill understood that, which is why that speech is so powerful, and it's why Darkest Hour is such an appalling film because it just thinks that speech is a victory speech. Hmm. And it, you know, he does the speech in Parliament, they all throw their hats up, and this is great. And the ending of Dunkirk is great because it's, it's you know, the kid doesn't get it. You know, he's reading it on the train, and yeah. he's like, "This we're coming, we're, we're retreating." And the people he's coming home to don't feel that way. And Churchill's like, I need to do two things here. I need to celebrate what these guys have done. And I need to get everyone ready for what's about to happen, which is going to be appalling and the greatest challenge this country's ever faced in her life. Yeah. Nolan totally gets the uh, contrast of that and the contradiction of that and creates this like superb ending. And like, you know, I don't want Nolan to make sequels, but there's a little part of me that wants him to after that. It's like, yeah, if I can do the, <laughs> do the Battle of Britain now. Yeah. Or do yeah. do Tom Hardy doing the Great Escape. Because <laughs> I think, it, yeah, in the um, preceding that film's release, there was a suspicion that that was what Nolan was doing, that he was doing the Battle of Britain. Yeah. That it was that. Yeah, and, and when we're talking about um, we'll wrap this up soon, I'm sure. Uh, well, I think we should wrap it up soon, because I actually think we weirdly actually agree. Considering that I, like, I ne- I thought I was needling you by saying this, but actually <laughs> you're, you accept that there's aspects of Nolan that are, are improvements on Cameron. I've actually, but, you know, I've accepted the aspects of Cameron that are better on him. On balance, I think Nolan's probably more impressive. You know, I like directors who actually make films occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Call yeah. me old-fashioned. <laughs> But I, and when I'm talking about Nolan as a technician uh, and one who is perhaps slightly deficient in heart, which I don't like to talk about because you know, football fans are always banging on about passion. No, you, you require ability, training, drills. Yes. It's not just about who wants it more. But um, it's not as though I'm untouched emotionally by what Nolan achieves and what he does in Dunkirk at the end of that with all of the instruments of filmmaking. And I think it's it's... What pushed it home for me was the penultimate shot of uh, Hardy, the, the penultimate shot of Hardy's plane on fire. And even while watching that, this is what you get when you're a cineast in your 30s. We've seen a lot of shit. And you think, yeah, that's a pretty good closing shot. But then it goes <laughs> back to, not Finn Wolfhard, but Fionn Whitehead. It goes back to Fionn Whitehead. For a split second. Yeah. And I thought, fuck, he's done it. There yeah, you go. That's, no, that's it. it. That's it. He, it, he knew. He, he knew. Yeah, because <laughs> well done. Yeah, because you know that would be a great closing shot for for any other filmmaker. But it's just like, but it still slightly robs it of. Uh, I keep wanting to say ambivalence. That's not the right word. There's a, there's a word to describe the <laughs> complexity of the of the Churchill speech. That it's two things. It's a victory speech and it's a, a acknowledging, you know, a defeat in a way. Yeah. But it, but the shot of you and Whitehead looking up for a split second does that. Yeah, that's the perfect ending. Yeah. for that film. And I'm, I was so, I was actively pleased <laughs> because remember, remember as well, as I've said, after an hour, I all but checked out because I thought it had. And then over that closing 25 minutes, so let's say after 50, 55 minutes, I checked out and I was out of the film for five or 15 minutes. And then the last 20 to 30, 
built dragged me back into it as it built to a wonderful crescendo. Just when you thought you were out, they dragged you back in. Exactly, and that closing shot is superb. And um, let's hope that's a bellwether for Nolan's career, because it, it couldn't be better. A lesser filmmaker would have ended with that shot of you Harvey. Know, I didn't, I didn't, and he almost did as well, but then he realised, no, I need something more. You were... Uh, I didn't even get your criticism of the kid falling down the stairs until you made me watch Do the Right Thing. And then you said something after that, like, Spike Lee has the balls to kill off the least sympathetic character in it. And it's only when, when you said that that I actually understood why you didn't like the thing in Dunkirk. I never remember the insightful things I say. You know, I... Um, <laughs> Radio Raheem. Yeah, he's, he's not sympathetic he's, at all. he's a dislikable character, but he doesn't yeah. deserve to die. Yeah. And But it's smart enough yeah. to kill him and let you feel something for that. Whereas, obviously, in Dunkirk, he is killing the, the truest yeah. innocent. I think it's one, of yeah, it's one of the best tests of character. So, Philip Seymour Hoffman says it in Mission Impossible 3. You can tell a lot about a person, the way they treat somebody, when they don't have to treat them well. Yeah. And we, we should think about that... God, J.J. Abrams is great. <laughs> I know. I, I don't... Yeah, I, I, we'll go into that another time. Well, my next but, thing I'm going to say to Neil you is J.J. Abrams is better than both James Cameron and Christopher Nolan. I'm not even sure if he's more successful than those. It, it, just well, in fiscal terms, I think Nolan's done better. Oh, that's a good question. Well, that that is a good question. <laughs> I mean, Nolan... Well, actually, because they both will be bigger than Abrams for this reason. Star Trek films actually don't take that much globally. Star Trek and Into Darkness between them about seven hundred million between them. Uh, it's only really the force. Huh. And Super Eight was a small hit. I think one hundred twenty domestic. Um, Mission Impossible Three came out when Mission Impossible films took about three four hundred million worldwide. Then we've got uh, seven and nine. Well, oh well, once nine comes out, that might change the metric yeah. slightly. But Force Awakens is his biggest thing. Uh, Nolan might beat them because actually he regularly directs massive films. Hmm. Uh, Truly massive films, like billion grosses, like the Dark Knight things, and then, uh... and in, I mean, in that way, he is like Kubrick in that Kubrick never lost his currency with Warner. He did exactly as he pleased, and they understood this bloke isn't necessarily a cash cow, but as a uh, as an artistic expression, we should allow him to do what he wants to and give him as long as he wants to do it, even if it's literally two years of editing. And it's because actually, because in, in a weird way, like. Although, uh, is it Warner Brothers that releases Nolan's films? Yeah. Although they are doing that with him. The fact is he hasn't directed a flop. <laughs> so True, yeah. 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 But it, it's, it's the same with Nolan, wherein he does as he pleases. He chose to make Dunkirk. It was... I, I, I've, I've read interviews where he didn't even want to divulge to them just how artistically challenging it would be and challenging to an audience... From the you know this is from the director of the Batman films, uh, an almost wordless twenty minutes. Yeah, but yeah, but, but that's absolutely another thing. Uh, and you shouldn't do things that are easy. Exactly, and no, yeah, this, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> we, I think we agree here. I just some adversity is utterly beneficial. I think the trial by fire is nourishing and builds character. And, and whenever one is tested, one learns more about oneself and improves one's or pushes one's limits. I remember. Almost this time last year, I was at the playoff final. There's a picture of me up there. Where am I? My old man made a, a birthday card of it. And it was um, honestly 26 degrees and we were in the sunlight the entire time. So maybe 30 degrees. And I went to the playoff final supporting Fulham, dressed as our manager then, Slavish Jokanovic. I was in a full suit and tie. And the impulse within me was honestly, they're going to sweat out there on the pitch for us. I need to feel that too. I need yeah. to somehow, within my physicality, reflect the trials they're going through also. 
And yeah, I think that, that one of the reasons it can't be happenstance that Nolan's films turn out as well as they do when, when you consider everything he's put into them. He's, he's a great example of a director who is getting at what he puts in. Everything's practical, it's shot on film, it's meticulously detailed. Uh, it's, uh, every one of his films is an event, just as it was with Kubrick. He's given the latitude and he to can do sell as he films, And he can sell films now. Like in the yeah. same way Spielberg could at a certain point. It's like, or Cameron can actually, because Avatar had no stars in. But everyone's like, holy shit, James Cameron's got a new film out. And yeah. its opening weekend gross wasn't actually record breaking. It took like $70 million. But for a film with no stars, a science fiction property, based on no pre existing property or franchise, yeah. that's impressive. And again, I'm pretty sure Dunkirk did 40, 50 million America. That's a, it's got like almost no stars in. All the stars it has are reduced to small supporting roles and are not bankable. Like Tom not, Hardy's not a bankable star, he, but he is a star. You barely see him, you know. You see, only see the bottom half of his face. Yeah. And uh, Michael Caine's in it, but he's as just well, got a radio voiceover. Yeah. There's no heroes. It's not a victory. Americans are probably unaware of it because it didn't involve them. There couldn't be a less commercial depiction of a theatre of action in World War Two. And yet it was bigger. It's not just the it's not just the opening weekend. It went on to take about two hundred. So mm. the word of mouth was solid. I look forward to Tenet. Even its name is intriguing because it's a palindrome, and you know, with Christopher yeah. Nolan, that's intentional. He's and also what I like about something. it is it's like. Because one of the reasons I like, you know, I like the fact that he deals with big ideas, even if it is at the expense of a bit of emotionality, even if it is at the expense of like good dialogue or whatever. And it's called Tenet. You know, the thing all religions are based on. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. The core thing of all our beliefs. That's already I'm excited for what the themes of this might well, be. I mean, sometimes it feels as though, and obviously this is how the conversation began. Watch the plug. This is how the conversation began. I must be muted in my praise of Nolan because you presumed that I didn't like him. I think it's more that... I don't know, maybe there's just been a couple of... I think you've slagged off the intellectual deficiency of the Dark Knight films. And then you'd, yeah. you'd also been dismissive of... Not dismissive is the wrong word. You'd been critical of elements of, of Dunkirk. I just assumed you weren't... Uh... And then the fact that you did say at least he's trying suggested that you'd had to overcome some opposition to him. So I just thought you liked him less than you did. But then I look at the fragment of casting that we have for Tenet. Elizabeth Debitsky, John David Washington, Robert Pattinson... I'd say that's perfect. I don't think that I could ask for three more interesting actors to be announced as the and central And again, triumvirate. this guy could have anyone. We know, yeah, and yeah. you know, Pattinson, yeah, he did do Twilight, but he's been off the radar commercially, uh, not artistically. He's been yeah. off the, since then. You know, he's not, he, there's no, you can't describe him as bankable. You know, is it Debicki or Debniki? I can't remember. I pronounce it Debitsky because that's the Polish pronunciation. She's Polish Australian. <laughs> But they just essentially need to start pronouncing things properly. So <laughs> okay, Dubitsky, well, yeah, yeah, um, Dubitsky. She's not a commercial project. She's she's a very exciting, talented, up and coming actress. Yeah, and uh, and John David Washington's coming off the back of um, uh, Black Klansman. It's a it's a stellar trio to put at the front of your film. And again, it doesn't matter that they're not necessarily bankable because it doesn't matter they're in a Nolan film. Yeah, that's going to sell it. I'm I'm honestly salivating at the prospect of the three of those in a Nolan picture. We should probably reconvene and go through his films one by one. Um, maybe well, are we going to do? Are you talking Christopher Nolan to me? The uh... <laughs> <laughs> but no, like do following followed by Memento. Maybe pair them together. But he's a and we'll, we need to do that in the run up to Tenet because yes. he's a, a filmmaker of 
he might be the most important filmmaker working today. And again, we're going back to our, our dismay at how franchise cinema dominates everything. We mentioned earlier that you might get one or two original films in the top ten grossing films of the year, and we said it's always a Pixar film. The other one is it's often a Nolan film. Yeah. It's an Inception. Every time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure. It has, yes. Uh, we'll pick something we're more likely to disagree on next time. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll do Mar- well, we- Marvel films are better than. I don't know. Midnight Run. We don't want to come to blows, but definitely, I'm sure there's something over which we could uh, how about more Crocod- intransigently How argue. about Crocodile Dundee 2 not really worth owning on VHS, <laughs> like you appear to do? I haven't got the third one, though. All right, it's been a pleasure. Before you go, though, I'm sure you've got some gigs upcoming. Yes, I'm doing Edinburgh Festival. This is in... It's actually not as far away as it feels. It feels like August is ages away. It's not. It's almost two months away. You've got about eight weeks, mate. Yeah, so um, 2nd of August to the 16th of August, 5.45pm at the Southsider pub uh, in Edinburgh. I will be doing a show every day with a great comedian called Alex Petropoulos. We'll be splitting an hour. I've just debuted my half of it in Brighton Fringe, where it went very well. Good. Uh, 100% feedback from the 24 people that came to see it. So uh, if that doesn't sell it, well, I don't know what will. Thank you very much. Um, yes. We'll hear from you again soon, whether it's Christopher Nolan or some more insightful, precise box office analysis. And I hope you won't be telling me that Endgame has taken the crown. I don't think it will. We should do the next time as an antidote, the filmmaker we love, but not many people do, Andrew Dominic. Oh, yeah. Everyone, oh, yeah. everyone loves yeah. Co- Nolan and Cameron. Yeah. We yeah. need to do Dominic because he is vastly, if not underrated, underseen, certainly. Mm. Kids need to know about Dominic. Right, yeah. thank you very much. See you again soon. Thank you. This has been One Sensational Shot. The evening glass. Cheerio. The best things in